Hello and welcome to this episode of HXGN Radio. I'm your host, Beth Keener. And in today's episode, we are revisiting the Mayflower Autonomous Ship and talking about its maiden voyage across the Atlantic with Brett Faniff, Managing Director of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship Project and President of Submergence Group. And we're also joined by Edward Milne, Technical Sales Manager for the EMEA region at Hexagon's Autonomy and Positioning Division. Wow, you guys both have quite the resume just in title. So thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Hello, Beth. Yep, great to be here. Awesome. Well, welcome, guys. Uh, Let's dive right in. Um, And yes, I was being punny with that. Um, We'll start with Brett. Brett, okay, so we had previously chatted, and we chatted about the Mayflower Autonomous Ship, or MASS, as you call it. And while the vessel was still getting ready, that's when we had our conversation, and it's traveling from Plymouth, England, to Plymouth, Massachusetts. So how does it feel now that it's arrived? Oh, I get asked that question a lot, and I'm never sure what to say. And, and largely, it's a it's a great relief. Um, <clears throat> we've spent a lot of time focused on it and a lot of effort to get it to this point. So we're, I mean, it's everybody expects me to be jumping up and down with excitement. It's just really more catharsis, right? So it just ah, I can take a breath after five, six years of working on this project. And then the other. Uh, feeling is now that the ocean didn't uh claim it for its own <laughs> i have to continue i have to continue to deal with it so it's uh it's relief that one aspect of the work is over and and then uh, trepidation that there's more to come but uh all in all it's it's overwhelmingly good feeling so when you say the ocean didn't claim it where did where is its resting place right now well, it's in it's right now it's at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And we we got into uh, Plymouth by a rather circuitous route. But then after it spent some time there, we moved it down to Woods Hole to install some new instruments as we're going to go out and do a little bit of oceanographic research later this fall and, and try some new things with the vehicle. Exciting. Exciting. So what did the journey look like? for Mass to travel from the UK to the US, and are there any parallels with the original Mayflower journey 400 years ago? Oh, uh, well, yeah, there's a few parallels, I suppose. We had to turn back at least uh, once, as, as they, they had to turn back twice, so a couple of false starts is fair, fair game, and then everything went really well at the beginning. We got, a, oh, I don't know, 10 days, 12 days out, a little more, and the ocean cooperated every, it, you know, it looked like a lake We'd look out into the cameras through the Mayflower and because we monitored it 24 hours a day and, and it looked like just a mill pond out there. And then uh, we developed a couple of little issues that forced us into the Azores. So we had to stop in Horta and resolve a problem. And then uh, it was about another thousand miles west of the Azores, 1100 miles west of the Azores on our way to Virginia, actually, which weirdly is what the original Mayflower was supposed to do as well in 1620. So we had decided to go to Virginia because we missed the 400th anniversary in Plymouth and that we wanted to get to DC ultimately. Uh, about a thousand, 1100 miles west of the Azores, we, we ended up developing a intermittent faults with a couple of the instruments on board and we didn't know what they were. And the closest landfall at that point then was Halifax. So we decided to turn to Halifax and we uh, we got all the way up there. We got, went through some pretty vicious weather, but we were able to get into Halifax and then make some repairs. 
and then uh, down to Plymouth, Massachusetts without incident. Interestingly enough, there's sort of uh, some debate about whether or not the original Mayflower, when it had been blown north from uh, its intended, intended landfall in Virginia, had actually gone along the coast of Nova Scotia and stopped for provisions. I won't comment on that. Um, <laughs> But because I don't know, and, but uh, if if so, then that's another parallel. But uh, yeah, it was a little bit less uh, of a direct route than we hoped. But uh, a touchdown is six points, no matter how you get the ball across the line. So we'll take it. Okay, so there were quite a few parallels, Brett. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, an exciting journey too. Um, so Eddie, now moving over to you. What role did Hexagon? Veripaz equipment play in the journey and how did the different pieces of technology work together to create an autonomous solution? Okay, thanks Beth. Um, yeah, so Veripaz, we supplied the GNSS system uh, for the Mayflower project. So uh, this system provided the accurate, robust and reliable position for the vessel throughout its journey uh, across the Atlantic. So it basically allowed the autonomous system on board the vessel to navigate either its pre-programmed uh, path or also uh, if it had autonomously decided it had a different path to take to allow it to actually navigate uh, those paths uh, as well uh, to make sure it basically got from uh, the UK across to uh, the United States. So with regards to the different technology, um, the multi-constellation and multi-frequency GNSS receiver uh, that's integrated into the LD8 units uh, that were installed on board. Those coupled with the Apex 5 uh, corrections enabled the positioning to use more than 30 satellites at any one time. And this allowed the vessel to be positioned continuously within four centimetres throughout the whole journey uh, across the uh, Atlantic. So the advanced interference and spoofing detection uh, on the LD unit was also able to identify any interfering or spoofing signal and warn the vessel systems of its presence, allowing the autonomous vessel systems to take appropriate action uh, to mitigate any problems in this regard. With regards to the Apex 5 uh, PPP correction service, not only does it remove the errors in the GPS, GLONASS, Galileo, Beidou and QGIS satellite systems, it also provides further checks to the GNSS positioning to detect any erroneous uh, data from specific satellites or constellations and removing these from the positioning solution. The Veripaz corrections uh, were received through multiple communication satellites uh, simultaneously and also used diverse communication systems to ensure the correction signals uh, were always received on the, the vessel, no matter uh, the location of the vessel or the environment that it was in. And finally, the quantum software uh, is used to remotely configure the LD8 units for any changes that are required at sea. But its main task was to provide detailed and precise status information to any shore monitoring personnel uh, regarding the performance of the LD8 units and the status uh, of its solution. So with its focused on any fault condition, uh, it allowed the uh, end user uh, remotely monitoring the system to identify any uh, issues easily and take appropriate action to mitigate and resolve these uh, in, mean, uh, in good time. I think the main point to note in this is that there's no personnel on board an autonomous vessel to resolve the issues uh, observed if the vessel's at shore. 
uh, oh, sorry, offshore. So this is why the uh, a robust system such as the LDA and the Apex 5 service are essential uh, to continued autonomous operations. So Eddie, what you're telling me is Hexagon had a really small job. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we're part of a whole system and it was a major, you know, the, the absolute positioning is, is the start of everything. If you don't have position uh, at sea, you've got no landmarks, nothing to actually measure yourself against. So it's not like you could follow a map when you're uh, on a road. It's the GNSS positioning is your absolute essential bit of kit for, for offshore positioning. And uh, so, yeah, that's where the start of everything is for, for all the rest of the sensors that are on board the Mayflower. Pretty incredible. And so I know that the primary goal of the entire voyage was to learn. Um, now, we're not only learning about technology enabling autonomy, but we're also learning about ocean and climate science and more. So I guess this would be um, a great question for Brett. You know, what did you learn? And then, Eddie, if you wanted to piggyback on that, I know from a technology standpoint, it's probably very interesting uh, what you learned as well. Sure. So, I mean, gosh, we learned a lot of things. Um, we're still analyzing the data. We're nowhere near ready to publish it. We collected so much information about um, marine mammals at sea, um, the elemental composition of the ocean, fluorometry, temperature, depth, salinity, uh, all sorts of different things uh, that we, we wanted to um, integrate and publish, but we just couldn't get enough bandwidth through the communication satellites we had to send it all off. So we're in the process now of sort of decompressing all the data from the archive on the ship. We're going through it all and parsing it out to various scientists that want to look at it. Um, but I, I'd say, you know, really what I learned, my, my personal takeaway from this is really more in the technological area other than, you know, not to steal Eddie's thunder there. I mean, I'm interested in, you know, I guess, I guess the big takeaway for me was that the ship itself is always going to be a ship. It's always going to have problems and design for, uh, reliability and resilience at sea is is really important, and Eddie alluded to that a few minutes ago. Um, there's no one there to fix it, but also that these things are are possible. Um, that we're not in the realm of theater or fantasy. These things are possible now. Long trans trans oceanic voyages, long deployments at sea into the into the deep ocean uh, with unmanned systems are are doable, and they drive down the cost. Uh, immensely to do the kinds of research we need to better understand the climate dynamics of the planet and to really understand the ocean. So there's lots of the ocean we've never looked at. And every time we look in the ocean, we learn new things. And that's there's no exception on this journey. We've learned lots of new things. But for me, it's really about the sort of underscoring the ability to do research in this new way and have it produce meaningful results. I mean, that, that's the big takeaway. So what we need is more ships, not Mayflowers per se, but more ships like Mayflower that are unmanned, autonomous, and uh, capable of collecting vast amounts of data. And we're moving now to the point where that can be processed, that data can be processed on the ship, on the edge, and create information that's immediately and direct, directly actionable by scientists on manned research vessels, of which we have few by comparison to the number of smaller unmanned systems we could deploy at a, at a significantly lower cost. And I think that's what this um, mission is really about, is moving us out of the sort of realm of fear and fantasy and the idea that it can't be done, the idea that it's dangerous, the idea that it's prohibitively expensive, 
None of those things are true. And so we're hoping it's a watershed moment for moving forward, both with regulators and scientists alike, uh, to get these things out in the ocean and learn more about our planet. Eddie? Um, so, yeah, as Brett says, you know, this uh, autonomy is not something that's uh, is something for the future. It's happening now. You know, autonomous and remotely operated ships is, uh, you know, they are growing. Uh, they're growing in numbers, but also in the size of the vessels as well uh, that uh, are, are being kind of built even at the moment. So for me, the uh, Brett mentioned the uh, data links and the amount of data coming back uh, from these vessels and being able to uh, actually do all the computations on board the, the vessel and limiting what's coming back uh, is important across these uh, satellite uh, communication links because the more data you bring across, uh, the more the satellite links basically cost. So, you know, reducing that bandwidth is uh, is very important. But also making the system as robust as possible. GNSS has been out for, for many years now and people um, basically take it for granted that it's, it is going to work. Um, but you have to, you know, it works when you build it into the system to start with, uh, that, uh, you know, you've got that robustness and the redundancy in the systems because you'll always get some kind of failure uh, offshore and you just have to make sure that you've got enough systems uh, kind of there and the systems that are there are tested and you know that they're robust uh, to make sure that they're just, you know, they're not going to fail. But if they do, then you've got things there to to back them up and be able to make sure that the uh, the positioning can continue. At the end of the day, if you've got a vessel in the middle of the ocean uh, that gets uh, loses its GNSS and you lose its position, trying to find that vessel is going to be a very interesting uh, project. <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's uh, yeah, you're, the main thing is making sure that you don't uh, you don't lose that positioning to start with. So you guys are mentioning and touching on the data. And as you had mentioned earlier, Brett, there's so much of it that was collected that it was that couldn't be simultaneously transferred back to where you guys were collecting from. And so you're just still digesting it now. And I also know that with all of this research in the ocean, that we're we're constantly trying to understand how the ocean can work to our benefit. Um, and life on land, but then also how to preserve our ocean. And so the data you collected was for marine mammal health, climate research, and then also um, could ocean waves be a sustainable energy source? So Brett, I know that there's still so much you are digging into, but can you share any early insights of the research that you have from Mass? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say I can't right now. I'm a little bit detached from it because I'm on holiday, believe it or not. But um, we're still deconvolving the data. It was quite voluminous. We did get back in real time sort of basic information about water temperature and salinity. And uh, occasionally we could pull some acoustic data off and, and when the when the system keyed that there were whales nearby. But we just haven't had the time now to deconvolve it all. Of course, the ship came in uh, and we pulled all the data out uh, there's still more to extract, actually, I found out yesterday, uh, right going into everybody's holiday season. So there'll be a lot more to tell um, in September. And again, you know, not to, to veer away from ocean health, which is a large part of why we wanted to do this. Um, what we have learned is a, a tremendous amount about building stable, uh, stable software systems, containerized, compartmented, 
highly modular reconfigurable software that can deploy on a minimal compute system on the edge. That sounds like gobbledygook, I suppose. But, <laughs> but, but, but we, were able, we were able to do some incredibly sophisticated sort of um, updates to and critical failure management to the system as a, as a result of the sort of leading edge design of its um, compute architecture through a very low bandwidth satellite connection. And the other thing we learned that's really important, and I, and I don't want to downplay this, aside from the, the tremendous value in having precise positioning, uh, which means without which the data basically is, you have to have position in time. And if you don't have that, uh, then it's of, of no, no value whatsoever. And that's, you know, depending on Veripause for that has made it, you know, very reliable part of the system, being able to know where we are and what we got. But beyond that, communications is critically important. Um, right now, there's a lot of angst about the deployment of these types of things, sort of unwarranted fear of potential uh, accidents. Uh, but these are still quite small compared to the ocean and the ships that traverse the large ocean. And, but the communications, being able to monitor the vessel real time, even though it's through a low bandwidth system, um, we expected to have about 50% uptime on the satellite. So we had to build a very smart vessel. Uh, but in fact, it was north of 95, 97, maybe 98, 99% uptime. We're, we're looking at the metrics now. And it was just an incredibly stable connection, more stable than this uh, link that I have with you guys for this discussion, it seems. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you know, that's, that's a huge success technologically that people underplay all the time. I think we take this level of communication and interconnectedness in our society for granted. And it's certainly not something mariners take take for granted. Um, but I think we can now, actually, and it's getting better. And it's not getting better incrementally. It's getting better by orders of magnitude on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis with a concomitant drop in cost or at least a flat cost relative to vastly increased bandwidth. So the utility of these vessels and the capability to understand what they're doing and to extract the data in real time is literally now upon us. So the next time we do a long transoceanic voyage, we'll be able to actually stream the real-time data off the boat so that in real time, we can integrate it to climate models and give it to scientists. So there's no latency between when we get to shore and they get the data, they'll get it in the moment, broadcast right off the ship at, 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 a, at, a, at less cost than if we had to do it that way today uh, with an order of magnitude less bandwidth. So not to dodge the question on early insights, but those are my big takeaways, right? So the technological leaps are going to allow us to get the data and to validate the data and compare the data sets with other either extant data uh, from, a, from the same region or from other devices in the same region to do cross calibration between various vehicle sensors and systems so that it's all sort of comparing apples to apples and to ask the ship really profoundly complex questions um, that we'd like it to get data to resolve uh, because of that increasing bandwidth in, in terms of communication. So uh, hold that space, but uh, give us a little more time. And uh, I think it's going to be very impressive what can be done in real time. So there, that was a long-winded way to not answer your question. <laughs> it was perfect, though, because honestly, it directly ties into Eddie here who I believe, you know, with, with running the, the Veripas, um technologies through Hexagon, you know, has a, probably more to add in regards to how precise, precise positioning empowers 
these marine research groups, like those working with mass, but then also just positioning in general and how that continues to play into the overall success of projects like these. Eddie, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, so basically, as, as Brett uh, mentioned uh, a few seconds ago, that being able to geolocate all that data that the uh, marine search uh, researchers are actually uh, logging is essential. If you aren't actually locating uh, where your data is, then if you're doing wildlife monitoring or you know defining migration routes uh, or looking at populations of wildlife or looking at the sea temperatures in a, a certain locations, etc., then you've got to geolocate all that information. And the, the more accurate uh, you can do that, uh, the better. Um, also, if you're actually trying to map any sea floor or um, looking at sea levels, then you could use the precise positioning, the vertical uh, element of the precise positioning uh, to actually measure uh, the height of the vessel. Um, and the mean sea surface uh, at any one time of where the vessel is. So again, you can actually use all that data to uh, take your uh, your data down to a mean and see how it varies uh, over, the, over the time. So yeah, the precise point positioning, it's uh, as you're getting further and further down into the, uh, the lower uh, levels uh, of, of the accuracy, um, then that's, uh, the data is becoming more and more accurate uh, and reliable. Okay, so MASS has received a lot of public attention. Were there any surprising groups who reached out to discuss the potential of autonomous technology in their own marine applications? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Surprising groups. Gosh, we, I mean, uh, there were some by which we were flattered. Um, we, we talk a lot with the U.S. Coast Guard and the research, U.S. Coast Guard Research Center about how to do... Um, how to implement autonomous technology in furtherance of the U.S. Coast Guard's mission, not just in protecting the coast, but also in doing uh, scientific research at sea, uh, specifically focused around sort of mitigating uh, mitigating risk of life at sea um, and, and search and rescue. We've got some contacts from my favorite one, NASA, um, because I'm, you know, I, I'm sort of do marine because I can't do uh, space. You're sort of a frustrated um space enthusiast that didn't figure out how to get into that field so i do the the underwater part which is sort of the the sometimes thought of as the poor cousin but i think it's harder but talking with nasa has been really exciting and the jpl guys about how we could use the ship and others like it interlinked almost as if the, the idea that almost like they're satellites uh, that float in the ocean in communication with a web of smart satellites with edge processing in space um, the idea being that while these satellites are doing research, ocean and the state of climate, their AI systems, which may be individuals or distributed across the space network, uh, space-based network can communicate with the ship and other ships, AI systems that are similar, and then come up with common research goals and do anomaly detection and retask each other dynamically without human input to investigate things that are unusual. So that's kind of interesting, right? It's a little bit of a Skynet feel to it, but not intended to, for sure. Uh, but yeah, those are really exciting. We got a lot of requests for people to um, to, to study mammals, to help in marine mammal uh, studies. That's interesting. It wasn't unexpected. We didn't get anything really, can't think of anything really crazy or wacky that we got. I kind of wish there were some wacky ones. That would be fun. <laughs> We've got asked about... Um, 
maybe doing something in some really remote areas uh, using this ship, Mayflower, or something like it, using its AI to uh, map Tristan da Cunha, which is the most remote populated island in the world. It's only reachable uh, by a ship from South Africa. Um, and I guess the ship goes every three weeks back and forth. And uh, I kind of want to go there and do that one. But uh, the whole point of an unmanned vessel is I don't go there and do that. The vessel does. Um, so uh, if you like to if you like to travel, it's a bit of a letdown. But other than that, it's it's but nothing great, no, nothing totally crazy. We got we did get asked if we could go up to the Arctic and do some work up there, climate research up there. But uh, it, it, it's so weather dependent. The ship wasn't built for ice, and uh, we're going to try to avoid the Titanic's fate at all costs. So probably won't go into the high Arctic. But uh, that would be exciting. The last time I was up there, I. It was the first time I'd seen a, a, a walrus in the wild right next to my rib. So that was interesting. Wow. Um, no, but that, I wish I had more to say that was insane. But no, I, I think that might be bonkers enough. So I'll leave it there. Eddie, have any final thoughts for us? I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts. Well, yeah, um, uh, with Brett there, thankfully, we've got no insane ones. Um, but, you know, autonomy and autonomous ships, it's just growing. And so, yeah, there's... Uh, the Mayflower certainly helped um, promote uh, what uh, Verapause can do uh, in the uh, autonomous uh, frame, and so yeah, we are uh, you know we are still talking to people um, about kind of more commercial uh, kind of side of things on uh, autonomous uh, autonomous vessels and fleets. So yeah, it's definitely it's growing, uh, and it's going to be just more and more. You know, it's. Uh, you know, there will be people at sea for a long time, but uh, this is probably the fastest growing uh, industry uh, for the future. Well, you're leading me right into my um, final question. And I just want to know what you guys' um, parting words are for what we can expect in the future, what we should look forward to in the future for, you know, autonomous travel um, throughout the ocean and um, anything that you think um, will be helpful as far as um, continuing to move forward in protecting our ocean life and, and how those two can connect and do and will continue to connect? You know, that's a really interesting question because I have been perplexed by something, I guess, for a while since we started doing Mayflower. So working with um, IBM, we set up a, a web portal that yeah, which most people have seen where we broadcast um, the camera feeds and other data from the ship in real time that we can support with the SATCOM. And, you know, I've said this before, at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up, well, I wonder what's happening to the ship. You know, I'd roll over, I'd log in and I'd, I'd see if everything was okay. And, and, you know, there's a, you know, at one point there were 30,000 people watching. Yeah, I could see how many people were looking at the camera feed. That's incredible. And I, yeah, well, I kept saying to myself, who are these weirdos, right, that are watching this, you know, from all parts of the world? And, you know, and I'm one of them, right? And I talked to so many people who, in government offices, in businesses that said, oh, you know, when, we'd get emails, oh, when is it coming back online? We, we had it on all day. It was great. Everybody was just watching it. And I, and it, and, and what I realized, I, th I kind of think is that, First and foremost, people have a very anachronistic view of the marine 
industry, right? I think they all sort of feel like it's mutiny on the bounty or dust boot, right? There's no real understanding by the general public uh, of the, the level of technology and complexity and risk in the marine enterprise. It is incredibly safe, though. It has become incredibly safe. But there's this sort of almost romantic allure of the of danger at sea that's not well informed by the state of the current technology and industry. And and, you know, we depend 90% of all freight moves at sea, right? Everything you order on Amazon has been on a boat, right? Um, and But people, by and large, are detached from it, right? It's a small sector of society that works at the sea, but all of society depends on the sea in many different ways for trade, for food, for, for climate uh, modulation, all of these things. And um, I think the way you what, – what I think is that people were – have a basic profound fascination with the unexplored and with the ocean in general. Mm. Um, there's, it's something intrinsic to humans and it isn't fed well. And, you know, people, a similar fascination with the unexplored with space, but it's much more fed in the popular psyche, right? With science fiction among other things. And so I think it's a, if you want people to care more, you need to show them what it is they're caring about. You need to find ways for them to experience it, the vastness of it, the complexity of it, the power of it, um, that don't necessarily put them in peril or cost them a fortune to, to, to experience. And so even something as simple as a camera feed uh, of the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at night with a full moon in front of the vessel or when the boat was crashing through 12 foot waves and one several waves actually overtopped the entire vessel. So at, at least at one or two points in our mission, the entire uh, Mayflower autonomous ship was underwater. Wow. Right. Um, yeah. And that's okay. Right. We understood that that could happen. Um, and we built submarines for a day job. So we know how to deal with it. It didn't go very deep, but it was very, it was awesome to watch. Right. When the wave rolled over the highest camera on the highest mast. And, um, but there's something very engaging. And I think that, I, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, I'm not a romantic by nature, but I, I think that that's one way you get people not necessarily excited, but fascinated. And they can see it and they can experience something that they probably have no other way in their life to experience mm. ever. So I think that we don't do a very good job of that generally. And so I took that away from it. And I think that's an important factor in, uh, instilling respect for and, and a desire to care for the ocean uh, in the average person. I don't know, maybe that sounds trite, but that's sort of one of the things I took from this whole experience. Eddie? Yeah, so uh, that's all good uh, Good stuff from Brett there. And uh, trying to follow that up, it's, um, you know, I think from my side, um, from my thought, uh, it's kind of on the that commercial side. It's uh, as Brett said, all the everything that you kind of probably purchase certainly, you know, uh, in the UK, you know, island state, and even kind of globally, it's probably all been at sea at at some point. Um, so the amount of things that you buy uh, are transported by by sea, and that's probably. That's one of the big things that uh, autonomy will come into is making these uh, vessels, which are massive vessels, uh, autonomous and, uh, you know, taking the need for people uh, to be at sea, which, you know, obviously it uh, improves safety uh, for sea. Um, 
you know, it's it's a very safe place to see, but it uh, can have its dangers. And the, taking the the person uh, out of there um, will remove the risk to, to any people. So I think that uh, autonomy at sea is something that's definitely it's coming is here now, but it's only going to grow. I think autonomy throughout all te- uh, all parts of our lives is going to grow. I guess that you know international laws and all this kind of stuff is going to have to kind of catch up with this this autonomy at sea, um, because there's so many uh, different organisations and uh, jurisdictions that have to be kind of overcome uh, for uh, vessels to be roam, roaming around the sea uh, without any um, humans on board. But it will come. You guys have. Uh, this conversation could go on forever. I feel like there's so much to learn and so many uh, fascinating parts of what you guys have done. And it's wild to be having a, a follow-up conversation about the full voyage of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship. And um, I just wanted to thank you guys for your time today and for sharing those insights and your thoughts on how this impacts technology, our ocean life, and truthfully the world, and then the potential of a future autonomous travel in the ocean. So thank you both for joining me. And for our listeners out there, you can learn more about the Mayflower Autonomous Ship at mass400.com and about Verapaz Assured Positioning Solutions at verapaz.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. And gentlemen, it has been a pleasure. Pleasure's all ours. Thank you very much. Thank you, Beth.